Amen. Well, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, he is the origin and the destiny of creation, the one through whom it came into existence and for whom it came into existence. It came from him in the beginning, and it's moving toward him, its end in him. Christ is the heart of creation. It cannot be understood properly without him. He is its first word and its last word. He is the A to Z. He is the be-all and end-all of creation. Now, our passage expresses this succinctly in two titles. Christ, it says, is the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. He is doubly Lord, first as creator and second as redeemer. And that is the story that our passage narrates. It gives us the story of Christ and the story of the universe from creation to re-creation. And it goes something like this. The universe came into existence through Christ, but tragically, its relationship to him was shattered through sin. The world was made through him, the Apostle John says, and the world did not know him. Ignorance, alienation, hostility, these are the terms that the problem is framed in. All creation, things in heaven and things on earth, are estranged from their source in Christ, turned against the very one who gave them life. And this is the enemy's work, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And severed from its source in Christ, creation descends into darkness. Its animosity toward Christ, its hostility toward him is its own death. Like a plant yanked up from its roots, it withers in the heat and open air. In short, creation has been derailed from its destiny in Christ. It was intended from the beginning to be for Him, that is, united to Him. But sin sabotaged that plan. It was destined to share in His glory and immortality, and yet it became the plaything of sin and death. Its only end now, everlasting destruction. Again, it's as if creation was originally set on an upward path, an upward trajectory. It was created innocent and good, but not perfect, not in its final glorified state. God intended to raise it up, so to speak, to make it perfect and to give it a share in his own life. But sin, through the work of the enemy, inverted that trajectory such that creation was sent tumbling headlong into the depths, further and further away from its proper end in Christ, until at last it comes to its resting place in corruption and death. 
Another way to picture it is as if creation is turned in upon itself, bent in upon itself. It was made, in fact, to be just the opposite, turned outward toward Christ, who is its life and light. But it has become like a black hole where the gravity is so impossibly strong that nothing can escape. A life has become unbearably dense and heavy and dark under sin. And all things experience this, right? The Apostle says in Romans chapter 8 that this corruption has extended throughout the entire world, the entire cosmos, but not in the magnitude that the human soul experiences this alienation, this being turned in upon itself away from Christ. And the reason is because it's the pinnacle of creation, your soul, your mind. And therefore, its weight is weightier, its darkness is darker. Again, the catch-all term here is alienation. In fact, if you look just a few verses further, 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, this is the condition of all creation, the condition of the human soul, alienated and hostile to God in Christ. Thus, if there is to be salvation... It must be the work of reconciliation. If alienation is the problem, reconciliation is the solution. Creation must be reunited to him through whom it came to be and for whom it came to be. Hence, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that is, Christ. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace to the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So here, we have this marvelous consistency, this symmetry between creation and redemption. Creation is reconciled through the same one who made it in the beginning. All things came into existence through Christ, and all things are reconciled back to God through Christ. He is the Father's agent in both works. So the firstborn of all creation becomes the firstborn from the dead in order to reconcile, to bring peace to creation through His cross. Now humanity, we know from Genesis was created in the image of God. But through sin, that image became disfigured. And as we continue to stray from our source in Christ, His image in us became almost non-existent. We descended further into darkness. But Christ, verse 15 says, is the image of God from eternity. And so to make peace, the uncreated image, Christ, assumed the form of the created image, humanity. He through whom we came to be became one of us in the incarnation, and he died to restore his image within us. Uh, The great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas puts it this way. And as far as he is the image, 
the Son has a kinship with that which he must restore. That is to say, with man who is created in the image of God. That is why it is fitting that the image assumes the image. That is to say, the uncreated image assumes the created image. Hence, this symmetry that we talked about. Creation and reconciliation are according to the image. Humans are created in the image of God. And that image is restored by Christ, who is the image of the invisible God from eternity. Now, by his incarnation, his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ restores creation, humanity, to its original goal. He becomes his creation by becoming man, and he meets it in the depths to which it had fallen. He emptied himself, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, descending from his glory above down to the very roots of creation's problem. And there on the cross, there in, in the very depth of his ascent from heaven, he takes upon himself this alienation and hostility of creation. And he puts an end to it through the blood of his cross, making peace. So Christ here, is portrayed as a mediator, as a go-between with two parties, of two parties at odds with one another. He bears upon his own heart the relational dysfunction and antagonism to bring the two together. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And this peacemaking work of Christ pours down from above all throughout creation. It washes through every corner of the world. Once that original alienation is taken away, the alienation between God and man, all other secondary alienations are also taken away. Because we are at peace with God, we can be at peace with one another. It becomes peace with men and with angels and with all creation. Hence the prophet's words, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25, The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. The work of Christ reconciles creation to God and creation to itself. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. And so in his resurrection, Christ raises up creation with him, setting it back on its upward trajectory. Creation is not abandoned or consigned to the trash heap. It's rather reconciled and restored. Salvation is not the destruction of creation, followed by our disembodied flight to heaven. It's the redemption of creation, the renewal of this world. In other words... In the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, creation realizes its, its destiny, the reason for which it was created. Now, in creation's glorification, it happens in three phases. First, in the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our created human nature is united to the eternal Son of God and seated 
at the right hand of the Father. This creation, originally made of dust, Genesis chapter 2, is raised to unimaginable heights, such that currently a human being is united to God, sitting on the throne of the universe. Creation is glorified in Christ. The second phase is our resurrection. We too shall be raised up and made to sit at the right hand of God. As we continue on in Colossians chapter 3, we'll find this very thing, where he says that we are currently seated at the right hand of God, and that will continue on into eternity. We are united to Christ as he is united to the Father. What has happened to him shall happen also to us. And the last phase is the restoration and glorification of all creation. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, the Apostle Paul says, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Christ has ascended to his divine glory, and caught in his train are all who believe. We're raised up with him. And caught in our train is all creation. Somehow there's a link between our glorification and the glorification of creation. So all things in heaven and earth are united as one under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are summed up in him as he is summed up in the Father. Hence, peace, creation itself, is caught up into the eternal love and harmony of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the bottom line is, the Father's good and wise plan for creation, not just its beginning but its end, is summed up in Christ, in whom, the Apostle tells us, the fullness dwells. Now as it pertains to the divinity, Christ is the fullness He is the complete and total manifestation of the Father's eternal nature. And as it pertains to creation, He is also the fullness. He gathers all things into Himself in creation and in reconciliation. He is the fullness of Creator and creation, divinity and humanity, the eternal and the temporal. Jesus Christ, it was God's pleasure from the very beginning that he would be the unity, the horizon where these two opposites meet, where creator and creation are united together as one. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, as the fullness both of creator and creation, the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead, Christ is Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He will come to have the first place in everything. In his ascension on high, Christ is enthroned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has become the firstborn from the dead. 
bearing our sins and rising from the tomb, that he might have the first place in everything. And so in reconciling creation back to its source, Jesus Christ is primarily establishing his kingdom upon earth. It's taken back from the enemy and wicked men who worked ruin upon it. And it's restored to its rightful ruler, the Prince of Peace. All things in heaven and on earth are reconciled under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 14. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be, both, uh, he, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord. Peace, then, that Jesus brings to the world is not a generic thing, but comes through obedience to the resurrected Lord. There is no peace apart from his lordship. All right, we have that wonderful image in Isaiah chapter 2 where all the nations stream to Jerusalem, where they take their instruments of war and they turn them into farming tools. That image is all based upon the fact that they're coming to Jerusalem to hear the word of the Lord, to learn his ways and to walk in obedience. Peace comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ and no other way. Hence, the good news places two demands upon creation, upon you and I. That Jesus would be given the first place, the preeminence, and that he's assigned that place in everything. Again, he is the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. So immediately, from the get-go, the good news places someone else at the center of our lives. The good news places someone else at the center of our lives. It draws us out from ourselves, and it plants someone else's flag on our hearts, claiming our allegiance and our devotion. Truly, the first thing that the gospel teaches us is that it's not about us. It's about Christ, the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. He is the center of everything. He is the star upon, around which all creation and every individual life orbits. The gospel places us squarely within a story that is not our own, in which we are not the main character It's so that Jesus would have the first place in everything. This was the Father's will from all eternity, that he would be Lord of heaven and earth. So in other words, the good news turns us outward. It opens us up. Our problem, remember, is alienation from our source, being turned in upon ourselves, caved in. Each human soul has become, like we said, a black hole, bending everything around the weight of the self. And the self is that point of gravity which warps everything around its perspective. Real concern beyond that which is merely your own cannot escape the event horizon. Put simply, the human problem is that the self has come to occupy the first place. 
the place that has been reserved for Christ alone. So when this announcement comes to us, the gospel message that says Jesus is Lord, it's a shock to the system, awakening us to a reality beyond our inward gaze. It says that the first place in your life is not yours, but it belongs to someone else. It was through him and for him that you were created. Jesus Christ is your life. And apart from him, your life is not really life, but a narrow and a small thing. The gospel is a call to open ourselves up to something more than ourselves. To find our lives not in ourselves, but in another. Jesus Christ the Lord, that he might have the first place in everything. Now, it's not primarily an announcement about submission and compliance. Jesus' lordship is not like Satan's, cruel and domineering. It's life-giving. It's the enemy under whose authority we groaned inside. Slaves to sin, slaves to death. Wanting to escape but not having even the power to do so. In giving over the first place to Jesus... We, in fact, find our lives. He is not someone who is alien to us. Remember, he is the one through whom and for whom we came into existence. The very core of the human person, the very thing about which it's constituted is Jesus. So that, in submitting to him, in giving him the first place, we simultaneously submit to our lives, to true life. As Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake, finds it. So it calls us to ever greater selflessness, opening up ourselves to more and more of him in whom all the fullness dwells. And and if you want to pry open a soul that has been bent in upon itself, the only way to do that is through the other, meaning other people. That is, to open up to Christ, we must open up to one another. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, in that great scene of judgment, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. They ask, Lord, when did we visit you? When did we do any of this for you? Go feed you and, 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 and go uh, visit you in prison. He says, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, these brothers of mine, you did it to me. So Christ has the first place in our lives when we give that place to others. What's needed here is empathy, or simply love. The ability to go outside yourself and enter into the concern, into the care of another. And not just merely emotionally, but indeed Only in this, extending outward of your own concern, is the spell of selfishness broken. Only in this is the soul able to be open beyond the confines of its own perspective. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He tells the church, right, to serve one another, to not only be concerned for your own interests, but the interests of others. In fact, to consider themselves better than you. He says, do this. Why? He says, because... 
This is the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. And then he speaks of Christ descending from heaven above, down to the form of a slave, dying his death on a cross. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Now, the second demand that the gospel places upon us is that Christ would be given the first place in everything. In other words, that the entirety of our lives would be turned over to his lordship. It's not something that can be yielded to in certain areas, yet sectioned off from others. There is no part of the human person that is secular, upon which Christ does not lay claim. He impinges and intrudes upon our thoughts, emotions, motives, relationship, careers, and everything else that constitutes a human person. The first place in everything. And what the gospel calls us to then is a complete and total transparency to the presence of Christ in our lives. That our entire being, our entire life would be open to him as his was open to the Father. Remember when uh, the disciples bring him food and he says, I have food to eat which you do not know. He says, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. And this gives us a glimpse, right, that the Father desires that Christ would have the first place in everything. It gives us a glimpse into the startling, almost frightening unity that God seeks with his human creatures. He's not content to be kept at a distance, to be held at arm's length from your life, but he keeps on breaking down our defenses, tearing down our walls, till it can be said, there in chapter 3 and verse uh, 11, Christ is all and in all. All areas of our life, he is all and in all. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I, I like the way he puts it in this illustration. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to you to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. So, what might it look like, in less metaphorical terms, to become transparent to Christ as he himself is transparent to the Father? Our answer comes later in the epistle. Verse 17 of chapter 3, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It means that our lives are permeated with the effortless intentionality of doing all things in the name for the glory of the Lord Jesus. It looks like the totality of our persons, every last word indeed, issuing from a supreme love for Christ and ordered toward his 
honor. Now remember, we spoke about the goal of creation in human life. That is, that it would be caught up into the triune life of God. Now, now this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like, doing all things for Jesus, for someone else. Because in the life of God, right, in the Trinity, there's not the slightest hint of the inward turn that we've been talking about, right? This collapse in, into our own self and forgetting everything outside. The Father and the Son are eternally open to one another and transparent to one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father, Jesus says. It's an act of ceaseless mutual love and fellowship. And the Spirit is the love that they share. He is the one between them who plumbs the deep things of God. So reconciliation will not be complete, right? This great work that has been started in Christ will not be complete until the human soul is opened up to God to the same degree that the members of the Trinity are opened up to one another, where every last trace of the ego is banished. Christ is all and in all. God the Father is all and in all, all of it encompassed by the Spirit. And I suppose that the whole of eternity will be this ceaseless progress into this very thing. The continual opening up of the human soul to God in Christ through Spirit. But this everything, right, that we've been talking about is not as personal as I've made it out to be. Certainly it is, but it's more than that. That Christ would have the first place in everything means everything. Not merely the individual human person but the totality of existence from one end to the other. Essentially, that is the gospel message. Jesus is Lord. It's not a message, the gospel, about us. Even a message about what can be done for us. At its heart, its announcement, it is an announcement about Jesus. That in his death and resurrection, he has become the ruler of heaven and earth. Forgiveness, going to heaven, escaping judgment, these are secondary to that most basic fact that Jesus is Lord. Because they would not be possible if Jesus were not Lord. Think of Peter, the first gospel ever preached. He concludes by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, the Lord, God, has made Lord and, um, and uh, ruler of everything. So at its core, this gospel is a royal announcement. In fact, the very word gospel originates in a royal context. In the ancient world, good news or gospel was an announcement of the ascension of a ruler to the throne. So the good news, as it would be announced to the people in the cities, is that so-and-so has become king. Here, again, is how the enemies of the apostle described his message, Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 7. These men who have upset the world have come here also. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There's the apostle's message. Jesus is Lord. And that message is inherently subversive and destabilizing. If Jesus is king, then these enemies are right, and Caesar is not. All heavenly and earthly rule, demonic and political, is relativized made subject to God's sovereignty in the exaltation of Christ. 
And so to confess that Jesus is Lord is to act contrary to the decrees of nation and kinship and tradition when they contradict him. Jesus is Lord and no one else. So this present evil age will come to an end when Christ's lordship will have been totally realized. 1 Corinthians 15, For he must reign, the scripture says, till he has put all enemies under his feet. All thrones and dominions and rulers and powers on heaven and earth, human governments and institutions and the spiritual powers behind them will be brought into line under Christ's reign. He will become the head over all things, at, his, at whose name every knee on heaven and on earth and below the earth will bow. So this is the end to which creation is headed. Christ is all and in all. Right now, we're not there. Reconciliation has been accomplished, but it has yet to wash through to the ends of the earth. Christ is Lord, but his lordship is not universally recognized. Strongholds of alienation and hostility remain. And here's where the church comes in. Let's return to verse 18 once again. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. Christ is Lord over the universe. His body, however, is the church. This local body and the church universal. Now implied here is a unique relationship. The church is the place in the present where Christ exercises his rule over all things. Right? This lordship of Christ is not quite realized out in the world, but it's realized here, or at least it ought to be. Right? His body, where we submit to the head, where we follow his lead, where we draw nourishment and, and, and strength from him. So what we're saying is that what's going to be at the end, right, when Christ returns, his universal lordship, is present now ahead of time within the church, his body. In other words, this reconciliation that Christ has accomplished begins here in the church. It begins with us, and it radiates outward from there, right? It's, it's real here. It's accomplished here. We're reconciled to the Father through the Son and to one another, but it's to go out from us also. So though the, the, the nations of the world, our friends and our family and whoever else, remain alienated from Christ, they're to look to the church and see what God intends for all creation, right? The, 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 way that, the way that we live together, the reconciliation that's here would be a sign of what things are to come. So in this sense, the church functions kind of like a preview, right? It's a glimpse. It's an anticipation of the way things are going to be. That end time reconciliation is at work now here within the church. And let me just close with two, two things about this. This places a remarkable dignity and responsibility upon our shoulders as the church. We tend to think of our life together, right? The, the way that we, we, we live with one another as a rather mundane thing. Part of the warp and woof of everyday life. A husband and wife learning to live together in peace. Members of the church resolving conflict with one another in a mature way. A congregation bearing together in love and humility. Now these things seem like small things. 
But they're way more than that. They are witnesses to the gospel of reconciliation at work among us. The reconciliation that takes place here is part of a much larger cosmic work. It is for these things that Christ died, to bring peace. Hence, a great dignity is placed on our life together. When we overcome sin and offense, and when we learn to abide together in unity, we are taking part in the Lord's universal work. That's what he died for, that we might be one. It's a witness to those around us, proclaiming to them the purpose of God in Christ, reconciliation and peace. Now one more thing, this dignity opens up to responsibility. Because we're under the lordship of Christ, we have a duty to embody this reconciling work in our congregation here and now. We are not at liberty to leave conflict and strife unresolved because that would be an abdication of the very purpose for which we exist, a denial that the cross of peace is at work in our midst. It's quite simple. Either the gospel works or it doesn't. If it does, then we must be reconciled to one another, learning to live together in peace. Hence, Colossians 3, 12 and 13 He says, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So it's fitting now that we culminate our service in Holy Communion. And the reason that it's fitting is because it's the pinnacle expression of God's reconciling and unifying work in Christ. In the bread and the cup, we are united to Christ, set in communion and fellowship with Him, and also with one another. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So by partaking of this, the very thing it's designed to show and communicate is unity. At one with Christ and at one with one another. So that said, if we are to partake, we must partake in peace, right? That's how we worthily partake the supper. So I want to invite you now to take this time to step into the light, uh, to confess your sins and to resolve any outstanding issues, to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to one another. Let the blood of peace wash away any remaining strife and walk in humility. So do that now, and uh, we'll partake of the supper together in a worthy manner in just a moment.